Hello, Gills and everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk. Today's featured Gills Club scientist interview is with Dr. Gail Schwederman. She is a fish physiologist, and she's interested in understanding how anthropogenic stressors, such as climate change and capture, affect coastal fishes. Specifically, she's interested in studying how the cardiorespiratory systems of benthic elasmobranchs, like sharks, skates, and rays, respond to acute and chronic hypoxia, which hypoxia is low-level oxygen in the water. She's also interested in how these systems respond to additional stressors, including temperature change and ocean acidification. With her research, she's hoping to apply these processes to the management process of these species to be able to create effective fisheries regulations. In Gail's interview today, you will be hearing about her PhD work with the clear nose skate. So if you're not familiar with this animal in our ocean, skates are in the same family as sharks and rays. Being a skate though, they are a little bit different than rays in our oceans. They do not have a stinging spine like a stingray does, but instead they do have a single row of thorns that runs down the center of their back to the tip of their tail. And the reason why this is called a clear nose skate, well, it's because their nose is translucent. So you can find the clear nose skate from as far north as Massachusetts into the south of Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. So we'll be hearing more about Gail's research with this species in the interview. So without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Gail Schwederman. Today on the Gills podcast, we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Gail Schwederman. So thank you so much for being able to join us this afternoon. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. To kick off the interview, um, I would love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, what is your current research focused on? Yeah, so I am actually not working on sharks at the moment, which I know is so sad. I am doing a one-year postdoc with Dr. Erica Eliason at University of California, Santa Barbara, and I'm mostly focusing on trying to understand how the heart um, or cardiac function contributes to the ability of an individual to tolerate warm temperatures. Uh, So this is science that definitely is applicable to shark science, but due to the lab facilities out here in California and also COVID, I'm just working on an intertidal fish that's really common, but it's really cool. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm using electrocardiograms or ECGs, which is the same thing that a doctor uses. Like that's like the classic, you know, heart monitor next to the patient's bed in a hospital. Um, And I'm using that to see how heart function changes as we warm up different fish. Which is awesome. And that is totally applicable toward sharks and really any species in our oceans right now um, as we see our climate change. So with that being your current line of work though, what is anything in the past that you've done maybe with sharks? Yeah, so my entire PhD was focused on sharks, looking at different physiological responses to stress. So that was also looking at things like how metabolism changes under ocean warming and ocean acidification, also looking at the ability of blood and red blood cells to tolerate changes in blood pH that occurs under exercise um, or air exposure. 
And so one of the things that we were particularly interested in quantifying was basically how different species of sharks and skates are more tolerant to stress than others. So I worked a lot with clear nose skate, which are really common along the U.S. East Coast um, and the Gulf of Mexico. And because they live in these near shore, super variable environments, we found that their tolerances were much higher to environmental change than some other species who live in the tropics and kind of see the same weather or environmental conditions year round. So kind of trying to get at what kind of like rules or generalizations you can make about which individuals or species are gonna be the winners and losers under climate change. That's, it's so interesting to see how it changes depending on what their environment would be in. I like how you you have them as like athletes and winners and lose and losers. And I think that's such a interesting way to be able to connect science. And I and I know it helps be able to connect those things within your research. But I also think to be able to connect those things with maybe someone that's maybe not involved in science as much. And that's an easy way for them to be like, oh, like winners and losers in fish. Like I know that by just watching like our Sunday football game. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You work with, um, or I say your past research has been with, with clear nose skates and some intercoastal fish and such, um, but is there a shark species that is on like your bucket list to study or maybe one to see? Yeah, so I would love to see tiger sharks in the wild. Um, when I was working in Florida doing some tagging work, we got some juvenile tiger sharks on board. We were working with a commercial fishing, fishing vessel to, to longline fish for different sharks in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're so funny because they're very slimy, one. Uh, slime gets everywhere all over the deck and also they would spit up or regurgitate whatever they had just eaten and so you'd have like bird feathers all over the boat or other random bits of like fishing gear um, and I'd heard stories of them eating you know car tires and license plates and all these random things so I kind of got fascinated with them doing that project but I've never seen them underwater. So I'd love to go diving with them at some point. I did a, a shark dive in Tahiti, but we didn't end up seeing any. So that's still, that's still on my bucket list to try to find them. Man, they are incredible. I have swam with tiger sharks once in my life and it was, they're just so cool. They're just so in incredible, but just hearing you say that, or like what fishermen have seen them eat or what they've expelled from their bodies and things that like they, they definitely have that trash can of the sea. They're keeping up that, that name for themselves. <laughs> it sounds like. Totally. But with being a scientist um, and having your PhD, I'm sure that you have had some challenges along the way. Describe what are some challenges you do face as a scientist? Well, right now it would probably be job security. <laughs> So after you go to graduate school and you get your PhD, if you're interested in becoming a professor at a university, you usually enter into this weird kind of gray area that's called um, postdocing, uh, or you look for postdoctoral fellowships. And these are relatively short-term positions uh, between six months to three years. And it's kind of this medium ground of being a student. So you're still trying to network and learn new techniques and work in different study systems. 
but you're also, you have your PhD, so you're sort of a fully independent scientist. And so trying to navigate that for a short time uh, is, yeah, that's that weird spot that I'm in right now. So I have uh, I have a one-year contract that I'm working on right now, but at the same time, I'm looking back and trying to finish up some projects from my PhD, but I'm also trying to look forward and apply for other grants and fellowships and jobs for whatever comes next for my career. So it's this constant balance of looking back and trying to be present in the moment with my current lab and also trying to look forward. That kind of balance isn't something that I've had to deal with before now. So that's definitely the, the biggest challenge, um, especially you know right now during COVID with so much uncertainty with everything in life. That's, that's definitely been my biggest hurdle or time sink right now. Absolutely. And I think that is something important to note, because if you are not involved in science, you might not realize that that depending on what path you go down, that like that job security or not security may or may not be there, depending on if you are someone that is working on a specific research, you know, once that research is done, then what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) People, um, you know, to move on and move forward them with that. So is that something that you didn't expect maybe when you wanted to go into this career field? Or is that something that you were prepared for? I think it's something that I I knew that the postdoc stage existed, but the realities of trying to you know find funding and potentially moving across the country or internationally every year or so, that didn't really hit home until I was wrapping up my degree. But I mean, it's definitely not necessary. I know a lot of people who got their PhDs or master's degrees and work in consulting firms or for the government or for NGOs that didn't postdoc and don't need to. Um, I just know that for myself, I get a lot of satisfaction out of teaching and being part of, you know, a college community. So this was kind of the, the necessary step that I had to embark on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's great. Um, I love to hear that you, you know, love teaching and being able, you know, you are doing some really cool research, but then being able to share that with students, but as well as be able to help students if they are looking into the field of sharks research or ocean research in general. I think that's awesome that you love being able to share your love <laughs> for science and our oceans. You know, you previously talked about your research and I did peruse your website beforehand, just because I know you do have your hands in a few different prop projects, but everything that you've been learning and that you've been studying, has there been a, your favorite, like aha moment or something that you didn't expect to happen? And then it did. I don't know if this is, this really counts, but I, I think about this particular moment from the first year of my PhD a lot. And it was uh, the summer after my first year. So I just spent you know, nine months doing classes and writing grants and trying to figure out funding and all these logistics. And I was trying to set up my first set of trials looking at clear nose skate metabolism and hypoxia tolerance. So how tolerant they are to low oxygen conditions. And the trial was taking way longer than I thought it would. I was like a month behind schedule because of some technical difficulties. And I ended up finally getting the experiment to work and it ran long. It went ran through dinner. I didn't finish cleaning up in the lab till like 1.30 in the morning. And 
walking back to the house I was staying in from the lab, I was just so excited because I finally had my own data. It wasn't a project that I was volunteering on. It wasn't somebody else who I was helping out who was then going to like analyze and publish the data. This was you know, my project that I had thought up by myself, that I had done all the background logistics work to make happen. And the reason it went long is because clear nose skates were like way more hypoxia tolerant than we thought they were going to be. So that was cool. But just knowing that I had, you know, conceived this project and, you know, now was well on my way to answering this question was so exciting. And, you know, now I do data collection for my own stuff all the time. And it often becomes very tedious and lots, not that like super thrilling a moment of ownership or of, you know, achieving something. And so I, I think about that, that moment when I first had my first experiment that I had designed done and try to keep that in mind, especially when I'm talking to students um, who are volunteering in other people's labs or are considering going to graduate school and trying to muster that same kind of enthusiasm that I, I remember feeling when I was just starting out in graduate school. That's so cool to hear. Um, you know, being able to have something be your own first off is amazing, but then being able to run that test and being able to have it run successfully, I'm sure is something that just is like a cloud nine. <laughs> yeah. That I would assume, again, I know that you've done a lot of different projects, but if you had an extra funding for a research project or maybe something that you wanted to expand on that you have previously done, what would you spend that extra funding on? I would love to go back to Maria in French Polynesia and continue some of the work that I did there on the juvenile lemon sharks and black tip reef sharks. It's just a really incredible environment because uh, all of French Polynesia is a shark sanctuary. So you have pretty healthy shark populations and that just, I mean, it's beautiful, but also it made catching individuals, the juvenile sharks that we would take into the lab and do experiments with. And one of the biggest hurdles to any kind of physiological experimentation is just getting the fish into the lab. And so just knowing that there were these healthy populations that I didn't have to stress about, oh, are we gonna be able to get 10 or 20 individuals uh, was, was really great. And just the community of people that I was working with, um, it was a contingent of researchers from Australia. They were just really, wonderful people, really supportive community. And I think that also made it such a good experience of knowing that these other researchers are going to be there to have your back when, you know, storms come through and the power goes out and you need all hands on deck to make sure that like the sharks have air and our temperature control and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also are going to, you know, nerd out with you about shark physiology and are going to challenge you to think critically and come up with new ideas. And that whole experience was just really exciting and really wonderful to be part of that scientific community and also part of the, you know, ecological community there that's so healthy compared to what we see in so many other parts of the world. 
I correct me if I'm wrong, but another Gills Club scientist was part of that. Um, Dr. Jody Rummer, right? Yes. Yes. I would hope to have, we hope to have her on this podcast as well. Um, but it's really cool to hear that you have this community effort being, being able to do that type of, of research, especially in an area that maybe you're not from, or you're not familiar with to have that support. Um, I'm sure it's definitely comforting and um, being able then to have, um, to set you up for success, but as well as that other researchers as well, to be able to set them up, themselves up as well. So being um, able to, you know, work with different scientists, staff members, students, you know, advisors in the past and such, who or what was your best resource or still is maybe your best resource here when doing science? Yeah, I have been very fortunate in that I've had a lot of really supportive, wonderful mentors, Jody Rummer, another Gills Club scientist being one of them. But I think something that maybe doesn't always come to mind when thinking about like mentors and resources would be just my peer community of other women in graduate school. Grad school can be really hard. Not only is it mentally challenging, like academically, but it can also be like really emotionally difficult because you, your whole life revolves around your project And there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress associated with that. And I have, I'm very fortunate in that I have a really tight community of other women who were also in graduate school at the same time I was. And they are good sounding boards if I need to vent or cry or whatever. They're there to celebrate all of my little wins with me. And some of them were in my program at in graduate school but some of them I have met or spent a total of maybe 10 days with at conferences Um, but there are other shark scientists and you know just having that support group that I can always shoot somebody a text or pick up the phone and call somebody and be like hey I'm struggling with this concept or I'm having a bad day that I think is is so critical and getting you through the graduate school process and beyond. And I've, I've learned so much from them, not only in terms of you know, facts and how to do statistical analyses and coding and stuff, but also just how to conduct myself as a scientist and you know, deal with difficult interpersonal situations. And yeah, I just, I really admire all of them and I feel very lucky to have them in my life. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel the same way um, where my office here um, with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, it's all women. Now our CEO is a woman, my boss is a woman, my group people I undersee are women, my coworker, like it's just like this group of like women power being able to uplift each other and support each other throughout that. Like uh, I, I feel for you with that. Like, and it's just so great to be able to have that support system around. For, before we do wrap up, I would love to know, um, what advice would you give to your younger self starting off in this field? I, so I give this advice to all of the undergrads that I work with and mentor, and it is that you don't have to go to grad school. There are so many ways to get involved in marine science and marine conservation that don't involve graduate school. And 
if you do decide that you want to get a master's degree or a PhD, or to help you decide if you want to get a master's degree or a PhD, I really recommend taking some time off between your undergraduate degree and applying to graduate school. I took two and a half years off and sometimes I wish I had taken more time just to get work experience and to network within the field and figure out what my passion was and my work style and what kind of lab environment I needed to look for in a graduate program. But it's okay to take time off. I feel like the the people I know who have been most successful in graduate school are those who have taken time off and, and really gotten to know themselves in a work environment. Um, and I also know people who are like, oh, I'm just going to take a year off because I'm burnt out on school and then I'll apply to graduate school. And they fell into a career that they loved and they never had to go back and get their master's and they're wildly successful um, just with their bachelor's degrees. And I think there's kind of in some schools and some professors, there's, there's this mentality that, you know, if you want to be a scientist, you, you follow these steps, you get your bachelor's and you get your master's and you get your PhD and, you know, it's all very linear and laid out. And I just don't think that's true. I think there are a lot of different pathways to success. And I think that success, what success looks like varies a lot from person to person. I don't think you can take too much time off. <laughs> would be my would sum it up no I agree everyone has their own path and you know having that time off helps you be able to discover yourself and being able to know you know if you maybe when you do graduate with your undergrad maybe you don't know exactly what path you want to go on to be able to figure that out that was when I graduated with mine that was such a big shift and hit be like masters 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 and I was like no and I've been out five years and I haven't come back for my masters yet um, <laughs> And that was one of my first jobs out of college. My boss was like sending me master's programs. I'm like, do you want me to leave? Like, <laughs> it's like, I like where I'm at right now. Um, so no, I definitely wholeheartedly agree with that advice. So before I do let you go, um, where on social media can the listeners follow you at? So I have an Instagram, which is at... G Schweedy. So it's G S C H W I E T Y. So my first initial, the first part of my last name. And I do post a lot of pictures of my experiments and stuff and also some personal content like my dog. And then uh, my Twitter is almost all, all science content. And my Twitter handle is G D Schwederman. Um, so my first and middle initial and then my last name. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing a little bit about yourself and your work. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Dr. Gail Schwederman. Again, if you would like to follow her on social media, her Twitter is GD Schwederman, which is S-C-H-W-I-E-T-E-R-M-A-N. If you would like to follow her on her Instagram, it is G Schweedy, S-C-H-W-I-E-T-Y. Or if you would like to deep dive in, learn furthermore about her research and her current work, you can also go over to her website, which is gailschwederman.com. Until next time, we hope that you have a good two weeks. Remember, this podcast does come out on a every other week basis. 
And until next time, we hope that you keep exploring, keep learning, always being curious, and look out for our next interview, which will be with Megan Winton. See you on the next episode.